Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger takes us back to the greatest rock concert that never happened. If you lived in Connecticut in the 1970s or are just up on your counterculture history, you probably know about the Powder Ridge Festival, which is best described as the greatest rock concert that never happened. Except it did happen just without the rock and roll, mostly. It's a bit messy, really. I've been wanting to do an episode about the Powder Ridge Festival for a long time, so I was pretty stoked to discover that a Connecticut-based film production company is in the midst of creating a documentary about it. What you're about to hear is a conversation between me and the film's director, Gorman Bichard. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to watch the trailer for the documentary and to keep tabs on its progress. I'm here with Gorman Bichard, filmmaker, screenwriter, and novelist. You might know him for his 2019 documentary, Pizza, A Love Story, a tribute to New Haven's holy trinity of pizza joints. Today, I'm speaking to him about a new project, a documentary about the Powder Ridge Festival of 1970. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to start off by asking you what drew you to this topic. You've made several films about music in the past, including... Um, documentaries about artists like Jay Bennett of Wilco, The Replacements, Lydia Lovelace. Was it the rock and roll of this or the lack thereof that well, drew you in? Well, the funny thing is what brought my attention to this was my wife's dad had been a state police, been in the state police for his entire life. He passed away. We were driving through uh, Meriden on 91 and there was the sign for the state police museum. She said, hey, let, can we just stop? It's open right now. Maybe they'll have some shots of my dad or something. So she's walking around looking at that and I'm walking around and I see a couple of pictures on the wall of this, what looks like Woodstock. You know, I mean, a lot of hippies on a outside, you know, partying. And I'm thinking, what in God's name is this? And Chris was, my wife, Chris was like, don't you remember my dad said he directed traffic when he was like a rookie cop at this festival? And she started looking more into it. She loves doing a lot of the initial research for me and finding me ideas. And she's, you know, said, I think there might be a story here. It's like, it looks like there's even mob involvement and things like that. And the more we started looking into it, the more we started peeling back these layers of this proverbial onion, the crazier the story got. And what initially was in my head, because we were moving right into the middle of COVID at this point, what initially was going to be maybe just another short film, sort of like my Matchbox Man, the one about the crazed Matchbox collector in Durham, it started saying, hey, you know, there's a feature film here. And the more we learn, the more I've gotten obsessed. And I swear every time or every other interview I do, I learned something else, or at least some wacky aspects that someone told me are now being like verified. And it's like, it's it's a crazy, crazy story. And virtually everything that you've read about it, including what you would think was a really, really in-depth five-piece article running from five consecutive days in the Hartford Current in November of 1970, completely wrong. So that's a strong statement. So take us through the beginning. What what was the Powder Ridge Festival? What were the origins of it? Who came up with the idea? Well, the idea was born by a connected man out of New York. And I say connected because I don't know that he was really in the mob, but I he he definitely had as uh, as his lawyer said to me the other day, uh, he had the heart of a con man, and his name was Ray Filiberti, and. He was looking, he was always looking for the next way to make money. And 
he saw the lines around the block for the Woodstock documentary. And he started getting in his head that this could be a great way to make some money, put it on a music festival and do a documentary on it, do, a, uh, do an album, which was how Woodstock never made money from ticket sales. Woodstock made all of its money from the merchandise afterwards, the, the, the documentary itself and the record sales. So Philip Birdie started like playing with this. He went first to a location in upstate New York. They wanted nothing. It was right on the Canadian border, a little town. They wanted nothing to do with it. And he discovered this place called Powder Ridge, or which was actually at that point was called Powder Hill. And he started talking with Lou Zemmel, who was a well-known communist in a very conservative town. Now, if you go back a little bit into Zemmel's history, Zemmel had actually argued the right to go to Cuba all the way to the Supreme Court. There's a famous case called Zemmel versus Rusk, which was Dean Rusk, uh, uh, Kennedy's Secretary of State at the time. Zemmel was also a big supporter of the Black Panthers. Going back a year, the Bobby Seale trial, and the person that Seale was accused of putting the hit on, hit, their body was dumped in Middlefield. And in the spring of 1970, Zemmel allows the Black Panthers to have a rally at Powder Hill. And we are talking a very, very conservative town. Uh, and I don't know that it's changed all that much uh, since then. Uh, and we were, and again, only 3,500 people then. I believe it's about 4,500 people now. So even the population has hardly grown in 52 years. So Ray Filiberti approaches Zemmel, likes the idea, and they're like, let's do this. Philip Birdie goes to his contacts in the music business, and there was a there was uh, a couple of agents and a couple of managers, and most of the big bands at that time were really under one or two roofs. And uh, he started putting together this amazing lineup, which was very similar to Woodstock minus Hendrix, pretty much, and The Who. But I mean, you had Joplin, you had Sly and the Family Stone, you had Richie Havens, you had the Allman Brothers. It, it was an amazing lineup. Three days, it was gonna be July 31st, August 1st and 2nd, 1970. At first, the town was agreeing to 18,000 tickets being sold. And that was the initial uh, the, the initial agreement and the initial contracts that I have. Uh, but something was tweaking the town where they were just not interested. Now, this is where the story sort of like, a lot of people are like, like claim, including this Hartford Current article, that this was never going to happen, that this was all a ruse to make money. However, I have now talked to, well, Melanie who was there, she was like, she was booked. Everyone seems to have been booked and given in advance. The big issue was all of the advances were in cash. And I spoke this weekend to a filmmaker, Bill Jersey, who was nominated twice for an Oscar for Best Documentary. And he even said, we were given $25,000 up front, $20 bills in a large paper bag that you would, like a shopping bag you'd get at the grocery store. I spoke to his lawyer. His lawyer, they owed the lawyer money. Filiberti and crew shows up, gives him two shopping bags full of $20 bills. I spoke to Filiberti's son, who was 10 years old at the time, and he said, after school, I would get home and I would just sit there and I would just count $20 bills. And my sound guy said, and how, how were they, you know, what, what were they kept in? And he, he went into his kitchen, came back with a paper bag. So it was, it was all cash. And Anthony Filiberti, the son, did say his dad had one major rule, 
notebooks ever. Never write anything down. So there is, so I mean, like I said, connected, but not necessarily mob. The other thing that is interesting about what uh, the Sun said was supposedly there were 50,000 tickets printed. Now, that's already 32,000 more than the contract allowed for. But the Sun also added they might have been printed three or four times. The rumor is that at least 100,000 tickets were sold. And, but again, no books, all cash. People lined around the block in a little shop on 57th Street. Plus, they were sold at like music and head shops all around Connecticut. They were sold at Powder Hill. And it's another thing, too, is uh, the, the name was changed for the festival. Anthony Filiberti, the son, takes credit for it because he's like, Powder Hill sounds like it's a tiny little place. It needs a bigger name. So it thus became Powder Ridge. How many people, do we have any idea of how many people actually ended up attending? It's festival? looking, the, the, the best number I can get when you talk to everybody, the average seems to be 40,000. 40. And I've now talked to at least 35, 40 attendees. Half of them did not have tickets and just snuck over the hill from Meriden. So it was going to be another Woodstock in that respect. So there's, there is a good possibility that if they sold that many tickets and this had all taken place and the roads had not been closed down, there could have been three, four, five 500,000 people there easily with the people sneaking in. And I did hear a, a real funny story from his lawyer because uh, one of the rules was they were, not supposed, they were just supposed to sell advanced tickets so they know how many people would be there and no tickets at the gate. And Filiberti came up with this idea that he would put people at the gate in really baggy sweatpants with, that are taped down at the bottom. And the pockets would have holes in them. So they could take the $20 bills and just put them in. So it's basically, there was, they weren't putting, they were basically hiding the $20 bills in the legs of their sweatpants. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But of course, now I'm hearing different things in the town. There was definitely, the town hated Zemel. Zemmel uh, and his children would sometimes wake up and find really horrible anti-Semitic things spray painted like on trash cans at the site. Uh, I've heard of people, uh, I've heard that the words stop Zemmel were spray painted across the street. So the town was very anti-Zemmel. And whether it was what one person has said that the injunction really came down to there were going to be too many kids there and it was going to be a danger for the kids and we wanted to protect the kids. Whether it was, we don't want, and I'm going to use their quote, dirty stinking hippies, which is what they put on, uh, the town put out on their flyers, coming to the town to indoctrinate their children into becoming more dirty stinking hippies or whatever the case may be. Or if it was that the town really just so hated Zemmel, so hated his politics, that they would pretty much do anything to make sure he failed. I think it's kind of a combination of all three because there are definitely people in the town that wish this had happened and thought that by canceling it, uh, they made the town made a horrible mistake, that this could have been a well-run festival given the opportunity. Now, I, I have heard that the musicians were on the way and stopped outside. I've heard everything that Sly from uh, Slime's Family Stone was at a motel down the street. Um, I've heard that Jefferson Airplane, who weren't even on the bill, were coming anyway, and they stopped at the Rose's Deli in Meriden. And um, Robbie DeRose was one of the people in the film. His dad gave them you know, the, uh, sandwiches for the entire bus. But the only person that made it through was Melanie. 
Melanie. Melanie, of brand new key fame. Mm-hmm. Um, not at that time yet, she hadn't written. She was, but at that point, it was Lay Down Candles in the Rain, the song she wrote so about Woodstock. Before brand new key. Okay. Yeah. Great. But this was after Lay Down Candle in the Rain came out in, I'm thinking, May of 1970. And Melanie said she was at home in Jersey talking to her husband. And she says, I'm going anyway. And her husband's like, Well, you're going to get arrested because they, they said any musicians that tried to get on site would be arrested. And she said, oh, what, They're going to arrest me for singing? Come on. So she gets there, she parks, she sees a 1010 news truck from the 1010 Winds from Jersey, and she says, hey, can you give me, I'm, this is who I am, can you give me a ride? They hid her guitar underneath the gear. They bring her to, to the set, this is like Friday late afternoon, and um, she gets out, and by this time now, the town in all of its, I don't know, Stupidity, I would say at this point, but um, and also like you really you wanted you were worried about the kids, but you're going to do this. The town cuts the power. The town cuts the power. Imagine cutting the power to forty thousand kids on a ski slope when it's in the nineties. I mean, think of the lawsuits that would. I mean, right now, I mean, if this was today, those kids would own the town of Middlefield. <laughs> so Melanie gets there, and there's no electricity for her amps. Bill Hanley and a few of the other people in the crew. Bill Hanley was the guy who invented stadium sound. He did the sound at Woodstock. He used to do the sound for the Rolling Stones, the Who. He is the one who invented the the whole towers and getting sound out to 100,000 people. He decides that he's going to hook up her amplifier to a Mr. Softy ice cream truck generator, which is, I I think, that's one of the first stories that I had heard, and I thought, this is amazing. And sure enough, she plays a short set. Uh, Hanley promptly promptly gets arrested. She does not, however, um, and she goes home. And that was pretty much it for the music. I mean, there was you know, but people. So you have forty thousand kids on a hill. You have a lot of people with guitars and bongos, and there are there's like little tribes of chanting and stuff. Drug use was through the roof. So this is actually so one of the th- reason I was interested in this in this topic is that I have an uncle who went to the Powder Ridge Festival mm-hmm. in 1970. So he was um, 19 at the time. And his memories of it are just, you know, every time I've asked him about it, he doesn't get too specific. But he'll just say, oh, it was great. Yeah, it was just great. You know, so many people. We just, you know, this, and like, there are drugs. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, people smoke about I'm like, well, what were you actually? He won't admit to me that he did anything um you know, more mm-hmm. serious than uh, smoke a little weed. But yeah, tell us about what was that? What well, was it like on the ground? It was like a drug supermarket or pop-up stores of drugs where you'd go like, here's your mescaline tent, here's your pot tent, here's your LSD tent, so forth and so on. And there were even price wars because there was so many drugs. I mean, you, I think they brought drugs for a couple hundred thousand people and there was only 40,000 people, most of whom already brought their own drugs. And remember, the reason these people kept showing up, this is not today where it'd be like, oh, text from this venue, concert's canceled. This is like kids coming as far as California to, you know, and they have no way of knowing. They're not, you know, they're probably not stopping to listen to the nightly news. And so, yeah, we have signs, uh, we have photos where, drug, you know, LSD, $10, crossed out $8, crossed out $5, crossed out $3, crossed out free. So they were giving it away at the end. Um, and the thing was, there really wasn't a police presence on site. The police presence was on the perimeters trying to keep more people out and getting the cars moving. Remember, there was only 199 state policemen, I believe, at that time total. And by, I think, Sunday, every, yeah, every single one of them was assigned to Middlefield. 
so yeah, I, I mean, but there are there are great. I mean, you know, there was electric Kool Aid being passed around in jugs everywhere. The, the 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 I hear the brown rice that was they were being served was also laced with acid. One of my favorite stories is someone came up with the idea they're going to roll up newspaper and make a two foot long joint, and everyone just popped in whatever pills, pot, everything into this joint. The thing that they used to seal it was Aunt Jemima's pancake syrup mix just lightly wet so it was sticky enough. They rolled it up and that joint was passed up and down the hill. They must have been toked on by 2,000 people. You know, I have this, you say this, you talk about this, and I just have this mental image of all these people who attended this festival today are grandparents, mm -hmm. you know, and thinking of them complaining about kids today and all of the horrible things that the youth of today get up to. And, I mean, these stories are horrifying on the one hand, but there's this, some, it makes me think there's this sort of interesting thing about that time period, right? The late 60s, early 70s. On the one hand, the way we're sort of schooled to think about it is exactly that, like, oh, it was the hippie days, it was just people were doing this, and it was, you know, wonderful. And it, it kind of has this patina of, I don't know, it's romanticized mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. On the other hand, this is horrifying behavior in some ways. If we, if it was happening now, we would be completely, you know, just horrified at, at what, you know, young folks were up to. And I was thinking about it. I sat down this morning and I made a list of, you know, what were some of the events going on in the culture in the like twelve months before Powder Ridge, right? Right. I mean, everything. The world was falling apart. The world was falling apart. So everything from uh, the Tate Lo Bianca murders. I made, I made a list here. The Stonewall Riots. You've got the Days of Rage in Chicago. You've got, you know, the beginning of uh, the Zodiac Killer spree. I mean, that's, you know, um, the, the right here in Connecticut, the trial of the New Haven Nine, the Kent State and um, Jackson State massacres when you have campuses, that's very spring, just in uproar, right? Um, the beginning of the lottery for the, the, the birth date lottery for the draft. What an awful time to be a young person. Right. You know, and so these festivals, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the context of music festivals? Well, yeah, I mean, because let's, you look at that, the whole summer of love cliche, I guess. Um, I mean, in, in the pinnacle was probably Woodstock, you know, but that's August 1969. Things really start going into the, you know, into the dumps. You yeah. do have Manson. You, I mean, Nixon's in the White House. We're in a war that no one wants to be in. Then you, the, one of the next big festivals is Altamont. And someone gets murdered right in front of the stage while the Rolling Stones are playing. So you can understand, one, why people didn't want festivals coming to their town. Um, but you could also understand, you know, it's, it's, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. There was such a political divide. And as opposed to just liberal versus, you know, conservative, it really was, you know, this, the, the, the youth culture versus old white men in power. Yeah. You know, which maybe it hasn't changed all that much. <laughs> right. the, the square community, yeah. to, to quote Bigelbowski, yeah. right? Yes. The square community. You know, so it, it, it was definitely a time where the world seemed ready to ignite. It, it, as much as we just, it was, it was very vo volatile. And it's, it's almost like what, what we know now, we sort of can't imagine it. You know, because it, it's almost like the war we have now seems to be internal. In, in the United States where we were fighting a war where just we were sending kids to a place that no one understood why we were even there. Right. You know, and you had Nixon, you had a president that had like an enemies list and you had Spiro Agnew. I mean, one of the interesting things was after Powder Ridge failed, 
Filiberti really did try to make it happen. First at Yankee Stadium, got shot down, and then at RFK Stadium. And as far as we know, that was shot down by Spiro Agnew, the vice president. Really? Yeah, there was, and him and Nixon were like, there's no way we're going to have 100, 200,000 kids, you know, because in their minds, it, was, it wasn't a music festival, it was protesting the war. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, opens April 21, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. So it is interesting, too, because there's so many um, ironies in the story, right? Because you've got this this site that's owned by a communist, right, who wants to bring in, um, you know, inviting this festival, a, a bunch of counterculture kids, but they're having capitalism price wars over the drugs that they're selling at the festival. And then you have Filiberti, who is really seeing this counterculture movement or event as a, as a profit-making venture. It's just... It's, it's soaked in irony. That's just, it's really fascinating to me. It's, it, it's it, a crazy story. It, and it, and it, it, gives really me, it gives me shades of uh, Woodstock 99, right? Which is that, I mean, we can talk, a li- I'd like mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about like subsequent music festivals too, but that whole, you know, we're going to bring back the spirit of the 60s. Right, and, it just a, and, and it's just a money-making enterprise. And, and, and probably much more of a catastrophe than this ever was. I mean, sure. they, didn't, they did okay. not burn down Powder, Powder no. Ridge. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, no. Woodstock 99 was a whatever phrase you want to use, okay. but it was a mess. I have read a few um, re- in the wake of the, I think it was 2017, the Fire Festival. Mm-hmm. That was a catastrophe, right? right? And um, there there were a few media mentions of, well, Connecticut had its own the Powder Ridge. Do you think that's an apt comparison and why not? Oh, I think why? we make the people at Fire, I think Powder Ridge makes the people at Fire look just like a bunch of millennial losers that didn't even, they didn't even know how to throw a fake festival. It's like, you know, no, I, it's the thing I think, Fire Festival would have been of no importance. It would have been for a bunch of rich kids and influencers. This could have been the other Woodstock. Okay. This could have been important. You know, and, and I mean, that was, I mean, if, if you want to say the promoters were inexperienced in trying to put together Powder Ridge the, it, at Firefest, they were, I mean, they were just, they, it wasn't, they were, they were too stupid to even know they were in. I mean, the, right. the guy who ran it is just a moron. Let's, let's, let's face it. But let's go back, though, to the kids where you're talking, because the other big thing was the amount of nudity. Mm. It was, I mean, it was just rampant. And, I mean, it really was a festival of sex and drugs with no rock and roll. And I, but one of the interesting quotes I got from a woman who attended, she said, I, would feel more comfortable walking around naked at that festival than I do just walking down the street today with clothes on. And I thought that was a really interesting comment on the times. 
so how many people, how many, I, I want to talk a little bit about your sources and where you've gone mm -hmm. to, I mean, clearly you've talked to some of the participants. Tell, how many of them and where else did you find information? We're, we're about at about 60 interviews now, 60. probably going to hit about 150. And um, we, a lot of, I mean, it started with just talking to people from, uh, you go on, on different Facebook groups, you know, Connecticut bands from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And like, I remember seeing someone posted about it and I did a post and hey, we're looking talk to people and you start getting people reaching out to you and um and then one day it was uh well i mean melanie was very girl on the list because i knew she was there and i had to get melanie in this so we were down in in nashville for another shoot for another film and uh she lives right outside of nashville so we spent it was we spent, had a melanie day and went and talked to her one of the interesting ones was one day it was last i remember it was last like july or so and i get an email and it's like i hear you're doing a Think uh, a, a documentary around the Potter Ridge Festival. My dad was Ray Filiberti. I was 10 years old at the time, and so I went out to San Diego and interviewed uh, interviewed uh, Anthony. Uh, he was great, and you know, and but it's like one name sort of leads to another, mm -hmm. to another, to another. We also found out um, an interesting thing that's usually not brought up, and I've rarely seen this mentioned in the articles. So Woodstock had Wavy Gravy in the Hog Farm, who was, mm -hmm. Wavy Gravy was the guy who just made all these stage announcements. And, and the Hog Farm was basically keeping the kids safe from, from bad trips and things like that, making sure no one got hurt. Well, they couldn't do Powder Ridge. So Zemmel reached out to another group that was based out of Yale called Cosmic Labs. And uh, I spoke, three of the guys from Cosmic Labs are all living in Berkeley. I mean, they, they are still revolutionary. Uh, types and um, yeah, and their their job was to keep the peace. But I, Richard Satz, uh, who is who's one of the leaders of the group, did tell me that at one point he was yanked. He was at a, a meeting with Zemmel in Zemmel's office, and he was yanked out by the state police and brought up to the Capitol, where he was told that this festival was all a ruse. And which sort of, you know, and, and he didn't, and when I talked to him, I said, no, I, these people were booked. He had never, they, they were under the impression at that point that the festival was all just fake anyway. And that sort of brings us to this Hartford Current article, which most of it stems from Lefkowitz, who was the, the state's attorney in New York. And it's funny because the articles ran on November, I think it was November 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And I remember Anthony Filiberti said to me, it's like, yeah, and what happens the first Tuesday of November? And I said, it's election day. And he goes, and Lefkowitz was running for office. And, I, and that article basically said that everything was a sham. You know, there was no movie being made, none of this. Well, like I said, I spoke to the Oscar-nominated director of the movie. I, I spoke to the lawyer who knew of the cash advances being given to artists. I spoke to one of the artists who said, oh no, we were absolutely booked, you know? And that, that's, that's the next thing. We're reaching out to even more of the existing bands to see, you know, what do you remember from this? You know, and were you stopped? Did you try to get there and everything else? Is there a video footage? I, so in the trailer, you have some video yeah, we footage. Have, we've gotten, uh, well, Super 8 or 8 oh, millimeter. Oh, sure. I, yeah. I do not know the yes. difference between them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, this, this was the little old cameras. You popped right. a little cartridge in, and you'd have 50, foot of, 50 feet of film, so it'd, it'd run just a few minutes. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of that. We've got access to almost 3,600 images. Still looking for more. Like, the thing that, one of the things that's frustrating is, they had shot quite a bit of footage for this documentary. 
no one knows where the footage is. One of my questions was, what do you wish you had that you don't have? And so that might be it. More footage would be More the footage. biggest thing. Yeah, that, I mean, because the interviews are coming along beautifully. We're, we are doing two and three a week. Um, it's because this is such an odd story. It, I usually do crowdsourcing, but it's easy. You do a band, you get all the band's fans to crowdsource the film. This, there's no like one thing. So it's, so we've been doing a lot of small crowdsourcing. When are you hoping to have it ready? Hoping to have a, a, a cut of it maybe by the end of the year. But like I said, everything, it, it keeps changing because it keeps growing. But like a rough cut and then start, you know, fine tuning it, submitting it to film festivals, you know, so forth. What were you, so you, you grew up in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So you were a kid when I this was 10, happened. Yeah. Do you remember hearing anything no, about this? I do not. So kind of just growing up in the area, I mean, when did Powder Ridge, what was it something you first were aware of and what were you, you know, in doing your research, what was, what were I, you most surprised to learn? I didn't, I did not know anything about it until, like I said, we, around time 20, maybe 2019 when my, my, my father-in-law passed. Mm -hmm. And wow, what was I, it's, it's like everything keeps changing. I think I was just believing the Hartford Current article, you know, that this was all a fake festival. And the more I peeled back that it like it wasn't, this was probably going to be a great music festival had they allowed it to happen. I think I was, I'm a, I've been a little surprised at how much the town hated Zemmel. I mean, you have, you have a businessman who's building a ski resort in a town that, you know, is basically an apple orchard and houses. And it's like, it's a perfect, you know, and, and so why would you dislike someone trying to bring some business to the town? Those are probably to me the most surprising things, and that a lot of people were going under. It's also again also surprising that there's been so much false reporting, that you know that there hasn't been a lot of deep diving into what really happened. And maybe it's too long. It's 52 years ago. Right, and also it's a weird event because it was supposed to be a music festival, and there's very little music mm -hmm. yet. There's a massive event that happened with maybe 40,000 people who still carry memories of it. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's almost like an, I'm trying to think of the right word, it's almost like, a, like an orphan event, right? It's, where do you slot it in the... Yeah, I mean, I still call it a festival because it was, but most of the people I talked with just considered it the greatest party of their lives. You know, whether they stayed one day, two days, three days, you definitely had people who were a little uncomfortable. They thought the scene was a little weird and maybe there was too much drugs for some people. But we are talking, you know, the end of the summer of love. And, you know, and, and maybe that's what, maybe this festival and the way it was canceled sort of was that final nail in the coffin, you know, with, you know, all the things that happened from Woodstock to this festival and, you know, that it, it, it was, we were no longer talking about peace, love and, 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 and so forth in, in, in the world anymore. It's take, It's just sort of taken a darker turn. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, I don't have many people that have said this was, I was scared out of my mind. I thought I was going to get killed. I remember no one was, no one died, which is pretty amazing considering the amount of drugs. One, a baby was born. A couple got married. Probably some babies were conceived. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. What do you think, I guess a larger question to sort of wrap, to sort of wrap us up is, what do you think the legacy of Powder Ridge is? And, and where did music festivals, was this 
this represents a sort of turn to a different type of music festival? Yeah, I mean, there were still festivals that came after that. The, the biggest one is the uh, the one with the Grateful Dead, the band, and the Allman Brothers in New York, which was the biggest music festival of all time. It was 73, and I'm, I'm not, it's, uh, it, was, it was named after the Speedway, and I'm completely like losing, forgetting the name of it. But they had 600,000 people, so that was the largest attendance of all time. And it was those three, it was just those three bands. I think it only took place for a day or two. And you know, and I, festivals sort of languished. I, I, you know, I don't think they really started coming of age again until you know the Coachellas and the Bonnaroo's of of our day. But there was one festival that did that preceded. Uh, Powder Ridge and is run straight through, which are the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals. But they were always so perfectly run. A lot of people look to them as being like, this is what a festival should be. I saw um, a, f a flyer that, you know, it's Powder Ridge, come see, it's like the Janis Joplin experience. And the it's, it's these tribute bands mm -hmm. and it's just um, kind of, you think you could have had the real thing. Well, the thing is the new owners definitely embrace right. this, the memory of this festival. Um, which is the best thing to do, you know. But I mean, I also I I did a um, I was on PLR and someone called in and he was just like it. He was from Middlefield and he said, you know, we don't like this being dredged up. And I'm thinking, it, it's like most of the people are long gone. I mean, it, it's you know, 52 years. Yeah, it's 52 years. 50 almost 53 years. Yeah, yeah, 50, right, yeah right. this summer. Yeah, it'll be 53. Yeah. Wow. It's an it's a very interesting story and there are so many angles to it and I don't think there's just one necessary answer as to why it was canceled, but it was definitely going to happen. Gorman, thank you so much. This was great, and I cannot wait to see the finished product. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check the show notes at gradingthenutmeg.lipson.com to find the Powder Ridge documentary trailer. This episode was produced by Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. Join us for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg in two weeks.